Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey, listeners. Welcome back to Buried Motives. That's really fast, Christy. (laughs) You're probably talking so fast because you've got so many things to do, which is common for all of us at the first of September. It's true. Sadly, summer is pretty much behind us. And that's kind of depressing for me. And so today I have a very depressing case. And I have a lot to say about it. So maybe that's why I was talking a little bit fast. She's just got to get it all in there. I do. So you better get started. Yes. I had to actually stop myself from writing notes with this one. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. It sounds like it's going to be a wild ride. It is. Buckle in. Here on Buried Motives, our goal is always to tell the victim's stories in a respectful way, but also to dig deep into what makes someone a dirtbag. What creates a murderer? How does someone do the unthinkable? If you are into true crime, you must wonder those same things. Especially if you are a longtime listener of our podcast, because we always aim to focus on this aspect. We like to dig deep. Absolutely. My question today is, do you think some people are just evil and murder because they are rotten to their stinking, disgusting core? Like there's no explanation at all? Yeah. I don't know. I think for me, it's so unsettling to think that there's no reason at all for it to happen. Because that means it can just happen at any time to anyone. It's so true. And that's a really unsettling feeling. It really is. And I honestly don't think this happens as often as someone might think that it does. But in preparation for today's case, I came across not one, but two cases that I think fall into this category of dirtbags. I already knew about both of these cases, but once I got researching, I knew they were a little different. The first one that I dug deep into, I am not ready to share yet. It has greatly disturbed me. However, I am going to share with you today the other one. It's funny how we have to kind of work up to doing a case. Yeah, because we go so much deeper than what we even present. And I was not ready to dive into that sick world of the other case. That is so interesting. I know I've got a couple of cases that I've been working on for well over a year. And you can only spend so much time on them before you're like, okay, I need to put this away. Yeah, you can physically start to not feel well as you're researching these dirtbags. Mm-hmm. Today's dirtbag is a woman who I honestly think was evil. I have no redeeming qualities to discuss about her. This case is not an easy one to listen to. I will be going into the details of the torture and child abuse that took place at her hands, as well as the hands she encouraged to join in on her demented fun. We almost are going to see a mob-type mentality emerge in this case. So she encouraged others to do her bidding, or she encouraged them to enjoy it themselves? Well, both. It's always both with her. If you happen to be listening from Indiana, you likely already know exactly what case I'm about to dive into. It is still referred to by many as Indiana's worst murder case. Today I'm going to start with our victim. Sylvia Marie Likens was born in Lebanon, Indiana on January 3, 1949. She was the middle of five children born to Lester Cecil Likens and Elizabeth, or Betty, Francis. Lester was 22 and Betty was 23 when Sylvia was born. So that means they married pretty young. In 1944, they would have been 17 and 18. And she was the fifth child. 
Middle of the fifth. Oh, okay. So she was the third child. Yeah. What is interesting about her sibling group is that Sylvia was sandwiched in between two sets of fraternal twins. She had a brother and a sister, Daniel and Diana, born two years before her, and then another brother and sister, Benny and Jenny, born the year after her. I wonder if that made her feel unique or a totally middle child syndrome. I wondered how that dynamic would have worked for Sylvia. I feel like she would have experienced middle child syndrome exponentially. Yeah. Because twins would get a lot of attention anyways. And then being in the middle of two sets of twins, I feel like you might feel a little forgotten. And even just the sheer fact that there's only one of you, so you don't require as much attention. Right. And you don't have your own little twin buddy. You know how twins have a special connection? So she might have felt a little bit on the outs. I'm just speculating. There was nothing that said that she did, but that would just be a very unique dynamic to grow up in. It would be. Sylvia's younger sister, Jenny, suffered from polio, making her wear a steel leg brace. The polio caused one leg to be much weaker than the other, and as a result, she walked with a noticeable limp. After other failed career attempts, Sylvia's parents became carnival workers and struggled a lot in their marriage. During the summer especially, they traveled a lot with the carnival. Unfortunately, this career choice was not very financially lucrative, and so the family struggled to make ends meet. This lifestyle caused the family to move 19 times between 1949 and 1965, the first 16 years of Sylvia's life. Wow, that's a lot of instability. That's exactly what I put, not a lot of stability growing up. As the kids got a bit older, Lester and Betty chose to take their sons with them to help as they traveled from carnival to carnival. They recognized that the carnival was not necessarily a safe place for growing girls, so they were often left behind in their grandmother's care. If the grandma could not watch them, they stayed at other relatives' homes. So were they safe in those homes? Yes. Okay. When Sylvia got old enough, she would earn money by doing chores for others. Things like babysitting, ironing, and running errands. It was said that she would share the money she earned with her mother. It just sounded like she was a good kid all around. Sylvia was described as being energetic, kind, outgoing, confident, and a lover of music. I guess the Beatles were her favorite. She took it upon herself to look out for her shyer little sister, Jenny. During the winter, she would take her skating. Sylvia would hang on to Jenny so she could skate with her strong leg. Physically, Sylvia was a beautiful girl. She had light brown wavy hair, a warm smile, and bright eyes. The only thing she felt insecure about was the fact that she had knocked out one of her front teeth while roughhousing with her brothers. Most of the pictures you'll see of her, she is smiling, but with her mouth closed. I assume her family would not have had the money to be able to get it fixed for her. And she was probably super self-conscious about it. She really was. But other than that, she seemed to have all the confidence in the world. And if she wasn't already adorable enough... Her friends called her Cookie, which I just find so cute. Because she was such a sweet person? Maybe. While living in Indianapolis, Indiana, Sylvia's mother, Betty, was arrested for shoplifting on July 3rd, 1965. She was sent to jail, but I'm unsure for how long. It didn't seem for a long time. What I do know is that when she was released, she jumped right back onto the carnival train with her husband and sons, this time headed to the East Coast. That's interesting. Was shoplifting a thing for her? Not that I read, but not having enough money was. Okay. So it was out of necessity then? That's what I'm assuming. Okay. The family had been living together when Betty was jailed, but with his wife gone, Lester decided that he could not care for all of the children by himself, even though they would have all been teenagers at this point, between 15 and 18 years old. 
At the time, Sylvia and Jenny were attending Arsenal Technical High School. They had become friends with two other sisters, Paula and Stephanie Banachevsky. I am unsure of the exact details of how the arrangement was made, but it was agreed upon between Lester and the mother of his daughter's friends, Gertrude, that she would watch over the girls for around four months until November when they would get back from the carnival. Lester promised to send Gertrude $20 a week as payment for watching his girls, and Gertrude promised to take care of his daughters as if they were her own. So she was being neighborly? She would appear to be. This verbal agreement was good enough for Lester. Unfortunately, he never checked out the home he was sending his daughters to. Some reports stated that the home was not the most inviting. It was dirty, there wasn't a lot of food, or a stove even to cook it in. And there definitely was not enough beds for everyone who lived in the home. Ooh. And the girls didn't know what the environment was like either? I don't think they had been to the house before. Okay, they just knew these girls from school. Right. The day after the 4th of July holiday, Sylvia, age 16, and Jenny, aged 15, moved into the home where Sylvia would later be murdered, at 3850 East New York Street in Indianapolis, or Indy as the locals apparently call it. At first, things started out great with this arrangement. Gertrude received her money from Lester, and the girls were having fun with the Beneshevsky family. They all went to church each Sunday. The pastor commented how reverent and religious Sylvia was. He could tell she was special. At home, Sylvia helped with the chores and enjoyed singing to records with Stephanie. Unfortunately, things took a turn beyond darkness. What happens to Sylvia is utterly heartbreaking. I will go into the details, but first... Let's learn a little bit more about the supposed caregiver, Gertrude. Gertrude was born on September 19, 1928, in Indianapolis, Indiana. She was given the name Gertrude Nadine Van Fossen by her parents, Hugh Marcus Van Fossen Sr. and Molly Myrtle Oakley. Both of her parents were from Illinois, but were of American and Dutch ancestry. According to grave records, there were seven kids in Gertrude's family growing up. She was number four. She had two sisters and four brothers, but I do have to say that most reports state her being number three out of six, but the grave records I found stated otherwise. Surprisingly, it seems that Gertrude had a good childhood. I did not read any reports of abuse. That being said, she did experience a very traumatic event in her young years. Gertrude, or Gertie as many called her, was inarguably a daddy's little girl. It was said that she was extremely close to her father. For her, the son rose and set on her dad. She did not have a good relationship with her mother. That was described as being cold. In 1939, when Gertrude was around 11 years old, she witnessed her father's death. A heart attack came on suddenly and was violent enough to kill him at age 50 right in front of his beloved daughter. Oh, that would be so difficult. It really would. At age 16, Gertrude dropped out of high school to marry a boy. I'm only speculating but I wonder if after her father's death, did Gertrude try and fill that void with male relationships? Because from age 16 on, it seemed like she could not be without a man in her life. Getting married at 16 was young, but not unheard of in the 40s. But it seems plausible that she would be looking for a male figure. Mm-hmm. I feel like we can explain what kind of happens with her, but I think it goes beyond just that. Like, I think there was some evilness involved here. Gertrude married an 18-year-old man from Youngsville, Pennsylvania, named John Stefan Banaszewski. This is where she gets the last name that we most commonly know her by. And fun fact, I looked up the origin of the name. Despite John being from Polish descent, 
The name is said to have been founded in the USA in the 1920s. However, John ended up changing his last name to Blake after finding out what Gertrude does so that he would not be associated with her. Oh, wow. That's got to be something pretty bad if he's willing to give up his own last name. Yeah. He did not want any ties to her whatsoever. Wow. Sadly, John didn't fully fill the void of a loving relationship that Gertrude might have been asking for. He was said to have an explosive temper and would sporadically beat his new bride for the next 10 years. What makes this even worse is that John was a deputy, someone who has sworn to protect. The couple had four children together during this time. I will tell you their names and their ages at the time of the murder. So Paula was 17 at the time of the murder, Stephanie 15, John Jr. was 12, and Marie was 11. So these were the two girls that were friends with Sylvia and Jenny. Right. And I am going to use the children's names in this case because most of them are involved in what happened in some way or another. It was her kids that she talked into doing awful things to somebody else? Some of them. Oh. But not just her kids. After divorcing John, Gertrude married a man named Edward Guthrie, or some reports said Guthrie. I don't know what John had that this bloke didn't, but Gertrude ended up divorcing him just three months after their wedding and essentially going right back to John. Some said that Edward couldn't handle raising children who belonged to another man, and that is why they split. John and Gertrude were married for a second time and had two more children together. He took her back. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, he was the one beating her, so I'm not sure why they split up in the first place. Or got back together in the first place. Right. The children they had this time was Shirley, who was 10 at the time of the murder, and James was age 8. I'm not sure how long they were married the second time, but by 1963, they decided to once again end their marriage. Nine years had passed between divorcing, so in total, I think they were together for around 18 years, give or take. Just with that little marriage blurb to the other guy in between. That's some history. Mm-hmm. Unsurprisingly, Gertrude wasted no time finding a new man. Apparently, it only took a few weeks. This time, she let her pre-cougar out of its cage and started a serious relationship with a man in his early 20s named Dennis Lee Wright. Dennis worked as a welder and was just another dirtbag. He also abused Gertrude. Although she did not experience abuse as far as we know as a child, she was sure experiencing it as an adult. Dennis and Gertrude had one child together, a son named Dennis Lee Wright Jr. Dennis was born in May of 1964, and he was age one at the time of the murder. Not long after his arrival, Dennis Sr. upped and bounced, deserting Gertrude and their son. Gertrude did file for child support against Dennis, but it was said that she rarely saw a penny from him. So when Sylvia and Jenny go to live with her, that makes nine kids total for a single mom. Yes. Wow. Yeah, that would be hard for anybody. It would be. Does she need the money? Is that why she took them in? Because why would you sign on for caring for extra children when you already have seven to care for by yourself? Well, the money was good that Lester was offering her, which we will talk about in a minute. Okay. And I do think that was the main reason why she took them in. Dennis and Gertrude were never legally married, but she did go by his last name, Wright, at times. Many think she used the last name Wright to try and save face for living with and having a child with a man whom she was not married to. And some reports say that she would tell people he was serving in the army and that's why he was not at home. That's sad. By 1965, Gertrude was left alone in her late 30s with seven children to care for, ranging in ages from 1 to 17. 
Gertrude had lived a hard adult life, and it was starting to take its toll. Have any of you listening ever seen the TikToks that question if you are a hot mom or a cigarette mom? There's a filter that you can use, and they say if you look good, you're a hot mom, and if you don't, you're a cigarette mom. I've tried it. I look like a cigarette mom. (laughs) (laughs) And I do have to say that Gertrude was more of a cigarette mom. And I can say that because what she does is so horrible, it cannot be justified. Plus, she was a chain smoker, so technically, she was a cigarette mom. Physically, she was five foot six inches tall and barely a hundred pounds. She was described as being haggard looking. But honestly, I am sure I look haggard at times and I never had to raise seven children on my own. Due to stress and lack of nutrition, her hair began to recede, her eyes became more sunken, and she would often get sick. People said she had an overall skeletal appearance. She just looks like she's had a hard life. She's a bag of bones. Yeah. When Sylvia and Jenny entered her life, Gertrude was battling depression and mourning a miscarriage. She had six miscarriages in total throughout the years, but the last one fathered by Dennis was said to have happened as a result of physical abuse by him. Before he left. Right. John was paying her child support, but it wasn't enough to adequately take care of them all. Her rent was only $55, but seven kids to raise would be costly in any generation. And her rent, if I worked it out in U.S. dollars today, is only 533 and 713 Canadian. So she wasn't living in a palace. No, not at all. One report even said that she didn't even have enough plates for everyone to have a plate at the same time. Like, they were living pretty desolate. Gertrude would do odd jobs like cleaning, babysitting, and sewing to try and add to her funds. Poor Sylvia, she's going to go into this situation and think that she has to help out somehow. She's already been helping out her own family financially, so I can just envision her going into this situation thinking, I've got to help. Well, and given the opportunity, I think she would have. Adding to her financial woes, Gertrude's oldest child, Paula, had become pregnant at the age of 17 after having an affair with a much older married man. Oh, so now she's going to have eight kids to feed. Yeah, 10 with the other two girls. With all the financial pressure on her, She was likely tickled pink at the idea of having two more kids join her bunch for an extra $20 each week. That would have paid rent and then some. Apparently, their house was the kids' hangout place. The kids always had friends over. So Gertrude likely thought she'd barely notice them being around. Like I said, things started out fine, but it was short-lived. After only a couple of payments, Lester stopped regularly sending Gertrude the money he owed her for taking in his children. I didn't read that he stopped sending the money completely, but it was often late. It seems like it's a lofty goal for even him, because being in the circus wasn't an overly lucrative job. And so he probably thought that, yes, I can send all this. And then once he was out working, had difficulty providing the funds. Yeah, it was probably harder than he thought. I think you're right. But he was still sending it. It would just sometimes show up a few days late. Oh, okay. And she was becoming very upset over that. I believe that this was the straw that broke this dirtbag camel's back. She had a lot on her shoulders and decided to take it out on an innocent teenage child. At first, Gertrude targeted both sisters equally. She would use a thick paddle to spank them on their bare bums. She would yell at them things like, quote, Well, I took care of you two little bees for a week for nothing. One time after doing this, the money showed up in the mail the very next day. The girls had moved in on July 5th. But by August, the punishments were getting worse. 
and by mid-month, Gertrude started to focus her anger intently on Sylvia. Although at the end of that month, both Sylvia and Jenny were beaten on the back with the same paddle more than a dozen times for eating too much food at the church picnic. Gertrude had only become aware of this because her pregnant daughter Paula had snitched on them. What? I thought, if this was me, I would be like, kids, eat as much as you can at the picnic so (laughs) I don't have to feed you when we get home. Doesn't make any sense. No, she was calling it gluttony. Oh, okay. It was like they were being rude to eat too much at a picnic. Were they overly religious and like gluttony is one of the seven deadly sins? I don't know if they were overly religious, but they did go to church every Sunday. It was probably more to save face. Okay. If Lester didn't know what kind of environment this family lived in and he thought they were good upstanding citizens well off enough to leave his daughters with, I doubt that other people knew what kind of situation was actually going on in the home either. And so maybe that's why they were trying to keep up appearances. Oh, I could totally see that. Because even her saying that Dennis was just away serving in the army was a way to save face. Mm -hmm. So she obviously cared what other people thought. Right. No one really knows for certainty why Gertrude eventually set her sight on Sylvia, but many believe that she was jealous of the beautiful girl who seemed to have so much going for her. She was young and beautiful with a bright future ahead. Many believe Gertrude projected the things that she hated about herself onto Sylvia. We've seen dirtbags do that before. Mm Mm-hmm. Beatings became more regular, along with withholding food from Sylvia. When Gertrude did allow Sylvia to eat, it was often just crackers or sometimes rotten food taken out of their garbage can. One time, Gertrude discovered Sylvia eating candy. Sylvia had purchased the candy with her own money. Sylvia and Jenny had rummaged through neighbors' garbage cans for bottles to take in for money. But Gertrude would not believe her and accused her of stealing. It seemed that Gertrude began to narrow in closer and closer on Sylvia, waiting for any excuse to pounce. We've all heard the saying that misery loves company. Well, Gertrude decided to recruit some of her children, as well as their friends, to join in on tormenting Sylvia. Did they think it was like a game? It almost becomes like that. Paula was one of the worst to jump on this sadistic bandwagon. Apparently, when Gertrude felt too weak to beat her, Paula would step in to help. Gertrude had asthma, so the beatings would make her winded, and then Paula would take over. I can kind of see why Paula would target Sylvia. Well, I'm sure she was jealous. Mm -hmm. One night, the family were eating hot dogs for dinner. Gertrude, along with Paula and a local boy named Randy Gordon Lepper, force-fed Sylvia a hot dog that was covered with an offensive amount of ketchup, mustard, and spices all over it. Sylvia vomited the hot dog and condiments up. As punishment... Sylvia was made to re-eat what she had just thrown up, and that happened on more than one occasion. The beatings and abuse around food was not enough for Gertrude. For some reason, she became hyper-focused on Sylvia's sexuality. She questioned Sylvia if she ever had a boyfriend. Sylvia told her she had one earlier that year when they lived in Long Beach, California. Gertrude asked her if she had, quote, ever done anything with a boy. Being unexperienced in this manner, Sylvia answered, I guess. She didn't know that Gertrude was alluding to the fact of doing something sexual with a boy. Sylvia said I guess because she had done things like skating or going to the park with a boy. After finding out that Sylvia had been under a blanket with a boy, she asked her why she did that. Sylvia said she didn't know. In response, Gertrude said to Sylvia, quote, You're certainly getting big in the stomach, Sylvia. It looks like you're going to have a baby. What? Yeah. Acting like Gertrude was just kidding, Sylvia joked that she just needed to go on a diet. 
Was there any reason why she was focusing on Sylvia's sexuality? Not that I could find out. But again, I think she was just projecting the things that she didn't like about herself onto Sylvia. And her daughter was just pregnant. And so I think focusing that on Sylvia was maybe taking away from, oh, my daughter just got pregnant by a married man, unwed. And she had just had a baby, unwed by a man. So she transferred it over to Sylvia. I think so. Interesting. Gertrude told Sylvia, along with all the other girls living in the house, that if they did anything with a boy, they would become pregnant. And she had become pregnant so much because she had seven children and six miscarriages. There's something odd about that. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if she was sexually abused too. I did not find any reports of that. But even her husband's maybe. Could have, because they were abusive. Mm -hmm. Suddenly though, because of this hyper-focus on Sylvia's sexuality... One day out of nowhere, Gertrude proceeded to kick Sylvia in the genitals. She was talking about how she's doing all these things and then was kicking her there. When Paula witnessed this, she jumped up and knocked Sylvia off her chair and onto the floor telling her, quote, you ain't fit to sit in the chair. And this says a lot about Paula's character. Most would be horrified to see their mother suddenly lash out in such a way, but not Paula. Wow. Stephanie, the second oldest, was not mean like her older sister Paula. However, she did get into a fight with Sylvia one time because she believed that Sylvia had started a rumor around their school that Stephanie was a sex worker. Stephanie punched Sylvia, but then they both started to cry at the situation. It is unclear if Sylvia actually started this rumor. I read accounts that supported both ideas. Regardless, Stephanie was willing to let it go, but her boyfriend at the time, Coy Randolph Hubbard, was not. He gave Sylvia a beating by striking her repeatedly, knocking her head against the wall, and then flipping her backwards onto the floor. Gertrude had encouraged all the teens who came to the house to take their crack at Sylvia. So when she found out what had happened, instead of defending the girl in her care, she grabbed her paddle and gave Sylvia a beating of her own. That's crazy. It is. It's disgusting. Another time, Stephanie tried to defend Sylvia after she was caught stealing a gym suit from the school. She had stolen it because Gertrude would not purchase it for her, and she had to have one for the class. As punishment, Gertrude whipped her with a three-inch wide police belt. I believe it was a police belt that John had left behind when he moved. As she was whipping her, she changed her chastisement to the evils of sex before marriage, always accusing Sylvia of being promiscuous and calling her a prostitute. Stephanie tried to defend Sylvia when Gertrude began kicking Sylvia in the genitals again. Next, she burned her fingertips with a match to stop her from having quote-unquote sticky fingers, and then resumed whipping her with the police belt. It was said that Sylvia was no longer allowed to go to school after this. Probably because she looked like she had been beaten. Yeah, and I looked up a picture of those police belts. Like, it's a big utility belt that would hurt to be whipped with. As I mentioned, Gertrude recruited her children as well as neighborhood kids to get in on the sickening fun. This is where I question some sort of mob mentality going on. Because they were all just like, yeah. And whenever they could, they were attacking her in some way. And was Gertrude building up this story about why Sylvia was bad and that's why they were so willing to hurt her? Sometimes. But Gertrude would do it and have the kids do it too. It just seems so odd. I think maybe having them join in, you know, when you want to go do something that you shouldn't, it's always better to have a friend do it with you and then you don't feel as guilty about it. It gives you more courage. Right. And maybe more validation 
in what you're doing. Justification. Yeah. Coy Hubbard, Stephanie's boyfriend, was always a willing participant, as was Paula. In fact, Paula gave Sylvia a beating to her face with such force that she broke her own wrist. It had to be casted, and when it was healed enough, Paula used her cast as extra leverage to beat Sylvia with. That is awful. How long did she stay in this house? Four months in total. There is no way to retell all the horrors that Sylvia had to sustain. Neighborhood kids used her to practice their judo moves on. They would cut her skin and burn her with lit cigarettes over a hundred times. Because Gertrude was always ranting about sexual uncleanliness, Sylvia's genitals were often a target of violence. While on one of these particular type of rampages, Gertrude forced Sylvia to undress in a room full of her peers, most of them being boys, and insert a glass cola bottle repeatedly into her vagina in front of all of them. She said she made her do it to prove to her little sister Jenny just what type of girl she was. That would have been horrific for Jenny to watch. All of them. That blew my mind. That would have hurt so bad. Yeah. Ugh. Jenny was still in the home, but was rightfully terrified. She got her own beating from time to time, but nothing like her sister. As a form of psychological abuse towards Jenny, Gertrude would make her hit her sister or endure a beating of her own. Jenny had wanted to tell what was happening, but Gertrude warned her that if she told, she would be treated like Sylvia. Remarkably, Lester and Betty Likens, the girls' parents, did stop in from time to time while en route to their next carnival location to visit their daughters. And the girls didn't say anything? They didn't. Jenny was too paralyzed with fear to say anything. And Gertrude and her house of bandits were too good at hiding their crimes. Also, Gertrude made sure to always be in the girls' presence when their parents were visiting to intimidate and restrict their opportunity to say anything. By the amount of abuse that Sylvia is getting... How could she hide any of those marks? I don't know. And she's being starved. She is. But I'm sure Gertrude was like, oh yeah, she hasn't had an appetite. Trying to just explain things away. And actually, the last time that Lester and Betty visited their daughters, and the last time they saw Sylvia alive, was on October 5th, 1965. So that was 20 days before her murder, and the abuse got progressively worse in those last few weeks. And they had planned to come back in November, so... She was killed right before they came back. Yes. But how things escalate is unbelievable. It's hard to imagine more escalation. Right. But it does. When their parents left, Gertrude taunted Sylvia by saying, quote, What are you going to do now, Sylvia? Now they're gone. And this is just so heartbreaking. It is easy for us to question how they possibly could have overlooked what was happening, but they felt confident enough in their care to leave them with the monster named Gertrude. That being said, some people did suspect foul play. Some reported it, and others did not. But either way, the result was the same. No one would come to help Sylvia and her sister Jenny. Part of that's the time, right? Yeah, and we're going to see an example of that. The Banachevskys' next-door neighbors were an older couple named Raymond and Phyllis Vermillion. They had visited with the family a few times and had seen the Likens girls be abused right in front of them. They noticed that they had black eyes and even said that the girls appeared to be almost zombified in their demeanor. Gertrude admitted almost proudly that she had given Sylvia the black eye, and they had witnessed Paula throwing steaming hot water in Sylvia's face. On another occasion, they saw Sylvia with a black eye and swollen lip, 
and Paula hitting Sylvia with her belt. Despite this, they did not report the abuse to the police. They just thought it was discipline? Yeah. But this is even a 17-year-old girl beating up a 16-year-old girl. That's not discipline. Yeah, and getting hot water thrown in your face is not discipline. No. There was no question it was abuse. But they decided to look the other way. Someone who did report them was a man named Michael John Monroe. He was the father of a boy who attended the same school. He called the school and said that a girl had open cuts and sores all over her body and was living at the Banachevsky home. At this point, Sylvia had not been to school in days, so the school sent out the school nurse to check in on her. When the nurse spoke to Gertrude, she told the nurse that Sylvia had run away the week prior and came home with sores because of her poor hygiene. Gertrude played it up, lying about what a hard-to-handle troublemaker Sylvia was and how she was doing her best to help her. She played the victim. She did. The nurse was satisfied with this conversation, and the school never checked in on her welfare again. They didn't speak to Sylvia herself? Nope. They just basically wrote her off as a bad seed and patted Gertrude on the back for taking in this wild child. Did they not know her personality from school? She had just started. Okay. Because they moved around so many times. This was not her school that she had been to for years. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. Regardless, they should have stood up for her. They should have. They should have talked to the child. They should have looked at her with their own eyes. Mm-hmm. One 12-year-old girl, Judy Duke, did try to get help for Sylvia when she saw what was happening. She told her mother, quote, They are beating Sylvia something awful. Her mother dismissed it as discipline. Judy later said, quote, My mother didn't do anything because she thought Sylvia was being beaten for being bad. The local reverend had visited the home and Gertrude filled him with lies. She said that Sylvia was pregnant as a result of her sex work and was a bad influence on her own innocent daughters. Little did he know that it was Gertrude's daughter who was the one pregnant at the time. Gertrude confessed to the reverend that she felt hatred for Sylvia, but he assured her that she was in fact showing her love by bringing her into her home and taking care of her. She totally had him bamboozled, and this reassurance likely just validated her behavior to herself. She has a reverend telling her what a great job she's doing. So bizarre. But you see that attention-seeking and validation-seeking from her. Mm-hmm. Another opportunity that could have resulted in help for the Likens girls was when police officers visited the home on more than one occasion. Gertrude had been charged for not paying the paperboy, and Marie had cut her hand. Both incidences caused police to visit. Plus, John, Gertrude's ex-husband, was an officer and had been at the home. Had he personally witnessed any of the abuse? I don't know. But he'd been in the home and the girls were there. How could you not see it? How would you never see Sylvia? Mm -hmm. Things get a little bit murkier when it comes to Sylvia and Jenny's older married sister, Diana Shoemaker. It was said that she was estranged from the family and was ordered by her parents to stay away from her younger sisters. The girls happened upon their older sister in the park and told her about the abuse, but they didn't tell her exactly where they were living. Diana knew that they all got spankings, even at their own home growing up, so she just assumed the girls were exaggerating the punishments. Jenny managed to get a letter to Diana, but she thought she was just playing the events up so that Diana would let the girls live with her. They're being overly dramatic. Yes. Because no one can imagine that this would actually be taking place. Yeah. But you believe a child when they tell you they're being abused, until you prove otherwise. The two sisters came across Diana another time at the park, but they were with Gertrude's daughter Marie at the time, so they wouldn't have been able to speak freely. 
Sylvia told Diana that she was hungry, and so Diana gave her sister a sandwich to eat. She hadn't told Diana she was being starved, just that she was hungry, so I can only imagine what a relief she would have felt to finally eat some real food. Sadly, this relief was short-lived. Marie ran home and told her mother that Sylvia had eaten the sandwich. This was cause for extreme punishment in Gertrude's eyes. It was gluttony after all. What? While she was starving her, she was restricting anything she could eat. So in comparison to what she was allowed to eat, this would have been gluttony. A whole sandwich. Yes. Paula was happy to join in on the punishment, which included strangling her and hitting her on the head. Gertrude then drew a scalding hot bath and the pair placed Sylvia in the burning water, saying it was to cleanse her of her sins. And this would happen often, the scalding baths. Sylvia began repeatedly passing out. And Gertrude's solution to this was to grab Sylvia by the hair and bang her head against the tub until she came back too. What literal pieces of garbage. Wow. Perhaps things didn't sit right with Diana because she eventually found out where they were living and went to the Banaszewski home to try and visit her sisters. Gertrude told her that she was under strict advisement to not allow her to see the girls. Only a couple of weeks before Sylvia's death, Jenny and Diana once again happened upon one another. Diana asked Jenny if Sylvia was okay. Jenny responded, quote, I can't tell you or I'll get into trouble. And she didn't go to the police? Nope, that was the end of that. This poor girl was left alone in a literal house of horrors and no one was going to come help her. And devastatingly, that horror was only going to get worse leading up to her death. Things escalated quickly. It seems like you could have just sat there and watched the evil fester and grow in this home. We're going to talk a bit more about the abuse and then the terrible death of Sylvia. So I'm just going to warn you that it's going to get worse. Sylvia was sustaining outward wounds at the hands of her abusers, but there were also internal wounds being inflicted. Because many of her beatings had been to her genital area, Sylvia eventually became incontinent. Gertrude stopped letting her use the bathroom and then would punish her for peeing on herself. Now that the abuse was causing a quote-unquote mess, Sylvia was hauled down into the dungy, dirty basement and tied to the stairs. Most of the time, she was left naked, without food or water, and was sometimes heightened up so that her feet hardly touched the ground. That is awful. So she's an absolute prisoner. Yes. And are the school-aged kids still coming around and beating her at this time? Oh, yeah. More often than before. No way. Yes. This abuse towards Sylvia became so frequent that it seemed the only time she was safe was when the family's favorite TV show was on. That's the only time they took a break from beating and humiliating her. I just can't imagine a human being doing this to another human being. Yeah. Because at this point, she's tied up in the basement. She's not even doing anything that Gertrude could quote unquote punish her for. Well, and it's not a one-time event. So it's not as though they talk them into it once. It's repeatedly. And it's not like in the heat of the moment when she's filled with anger and rage. It's now just becoming the thing that they do in that home. Just for fun. Yes. Neighborhood kids continued to come over to watch or participate in the evil doings. Only now, Gertrude would charge them five cents apiece to enter. No way. They had her tied up in the basement and were charging people to come in like some sort of carnival sideshow. Her parents are away earning money at the carnival and now she's become one of the carnival shows. Yeah, in a very sick and demented way. She's charging money for the kids to come in. Yeah, you can come in and do whatever you want to her, but you got to pay me. And kids are paying it. They are. 
Could you imagine as a parent giving your child the money to go and beat some other child? No. Like thinking you're giving them money for ice cream and then finding out that they went over to burn a cigarette into a girl's naked body. Yeah, that would be awful. Or kick her in the genitals or punch her in the head. And was it boys and girls? Yes. Oh. They would verbally attack her and inflict as much pain on her physically as they could. They would cut her, burn her, kick and beat her. The kids would help Gertrude tie Sylvia up, gag her, and then set her in the burning hot tub. Once in the tub, they began rubbing salt into her wounds. So she has all these open sores and they would clean her up with the salt. I can't even imagine what that would feel like in the burning hot water. No. As if what she was doing wasn't bad enough, Gertrude decided to take things even further. Remember she had a one-year-old baby boy in the home when all of this was going on, Dennis Jr. Gertrude enlisted the help of her 12-year-old son, John Jr., to go and get one of Dennis's soiled diapers. They opened the diaper and rubbed it onto Sylvia's face, causing feces and urine from the diaper to go into her mouth. Once satisfied with what she had done, Gertrude gave Sylvia a half glass of water to drink, the only water she got for the day. And I read that this was not the only time she was made to ingest human waste. That is disgusting. Yeah, I cannot even imagine. But like we found out last week, some people get off on that. Oh, but this was a way to just degrade her. That is so awful. Yeah. Can you imagine not having anything to eat? They smear this in your face. You can't even clean it out. And then she gives her half a glass of water. No, that's disgusting. Yeah. Sylvia was becoming extremely malnourished. To taunt her, John Jr. placed a bowl of soup in front of her and told her to eat it with her fingers. When she would try, he would pull the bowl away from her like it was some sort of game. And I just thought, how does a 12-year-old get enjoyment from this type of torture? He thought it was so funny. Yeah, there's just something off about all these people. That's what I mean. It was almost like you could see the evil just growing like a black cloud. On October 22nd, just four days before her death, Sylvia was allowed to sleep upstairs on a mattress. Sylvia begged Jenny for a glass of water before bed, and so Jenny snuck one to her. The next morning, Sylvia awoke to a wet bed. To punish her, Sylvia was again ordered to insert a glass cola bottle into herself repeatedly while all the other children watched. She was then taken back down to the basement like it was a dungeon. However, Gertrude was ultimately not satisfied with this punishment and ordered Sylvia back upstairs into the kitchen. She again called Sylvia a prostitute and said, quote, You have branded my daughters. Now I'm going to brand you. How does she brand her daughters? Well, by saying branded, I think she meant that she was a bad influence on her daughters or for the supposed rumor she had been punished for already about her daughters being sex workers. So you've branded their good name. I'm going to brand you. Okay. And Gertrude, unfortunately, was literal with her threat of being branded. She made Sylvia strip naked and then heated up a needle until it was bright orange and began etching the phrase, quote, I am a prostitute and proud of it into the flesh across Sylvia's abdomen. I don't even know how she is withstanding all of this. I don't know either. Before finishing the phrase, Gertrude ordered one of the neighbor boys, 14-year-old Richard Dean Hobbs, to finish carving the words into Sylvia's body for her so she could take Jenny to the grocery store. And so he did. Sylvia had to stand and endure the pain until he was done. It was said that she clenched her teeth and moaned. This branding was causing third-degree burns on her body. And just to put this into perspective, Richard was so young that he had to ask Gertrude to write down how to spell prostitute for him on a piece of paper so he wouldn't spell it incorrectly. 
This is just mind-boggling. How is she getting these young children to do such mean things? I don't know. She just talks so badly about Sylvia and all these reasons why she deserved it and we have to punish her. And they were not batting an eye. They were jumping in. When he was done, Richard and Shirley, who was only 10, hauled Sylvia back downstairs. They weren't done with their fun and proceeded to heat up an anchor bolt to try and brand the letter S into her rib area under her left breast. The burns would later be reported as taking on the number three shape. And I just think, how was this real life? How did one evil woman foster so many monsters? When Gertrude returned from the store, she teased Sylvia by saying, quote, Sylvia, what are you going to do now? You can't get married. Now you can't get dressed in front of anyone. What are you going to do? When more children came to the house throughout the day, Gertrude sent them downstairs to check out her handiwork. She's like, oh, go look, see what's on Sylvia. Although she left out the part about doing the torture herself. Instead, she told everyone that Sylvia had been branded while willingly being at a sex party. Oh my goodness. This is unbelievable. It is. That night, Sylvia told her sister, quote, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can tell it. The next morning on October 25th, realizing the line she had crossed, Gertrude decided she needed to cover her butt in the event that someone would find out what they did to Sylvia. Her idea was to force Sylvia to write a letter. She made Sylvia say in the letter that she had run away from the Banishevsky home and had sex with a group of boys who then mutilated her body. The letter read, quote, I went with a gang of boys in the middle of the night. They said they would pay me if I would give them something. So I got in the car and they all got what they wanted. And when they got finished, they beat me and left sores on my face and all over my body. And they also put on my stomach, I am a prostitute and proud of it. I have done just about everything that I could do just to make Gertie mad and cause Gertie more money than she's got. I've tore up a new mattress and peed on it. I also cost Gertie doctor bills that she really can't pay and made Gertie a nervous wreck and all her kids. Was she ever taken to the doctors to cause bills? Not that I'm aware of. I don't believe so. So this is how Gertrude is covering her tracks. Right, to explain the branding on her now and all of the beating and sores. Right, because her parents are due back at any time. Right. And she had her address the letter to her parents. With the letter written, Gertrude's plan was then to have John Jr. and Jenny blindfold Sylvia and lead her out to the woods and leave her for dead. So she wanted it to be that she would be found and she would have that note on her and Gertrude would be not connected at all. Gertrude gave Sylvia some crackers to eat, but she was physically unable due to her starvation and dehydration. Gertrude got angry and shoved the crackers into her mouth and then proceeded to punch her in the gut with the help of her son, John Jr. Sylvia had overheard Gertrude's sinister plan to leave her to die in the woods alone. Mustering up as much strength as she could, Sylvia, now only a shell of her former self, made a run for the front door. She knew escaping would be the only way for her to be able to live. I cannot imagine how she must have felt when Gertrude was able to grab her just as she got to the porch of the house and prevented her from leaving. She's going to throw her out in the woods anyway. Just let her go. Right. But then she knew she would go tell somebody and if she left her in the woods, she would die. Hmm. Gertrude tried to give her more crackers. But when Sylvia was still unable to eat them, she hit her across the face multiple times with a curtain rod so hard that it bent the rod into 90 degree angles. Not wanting to miss out, Coy Hubbard took the rod and hit Sylvia so hard with it that he knocked her unconscious. One report said it was a broom that he hit her with. 
Either way, he hit her, hard enough to make her pass out. Gertrude then hauled her back to the basement. Later that night, assumably knowing she didn't have much time left, Sylvia grabbed a small shovel and started to bang it against the floor and scream for help. A neighbor miraculously heard her, but when the ruckus stopped suddenly around 3 a.m., the neighbor decided to not bother calling the police. Oh, no. This girl should have never been murdered. So many times there was an opportunity for her to get help. For someone to intervene. Yeah. I'm sorry, 3 o'clock in the morning, you hear a young girl crying for help and banging a shovel against the ground? You check that out. You call the police. I am just shocked that she is still going. Yeah. Her will to live had to have been remarkable. But she knows it's coming. She told her sister she can feel it. She's heard their plan. She knows they're wanting to end her life. I don't even know how she's not filled with infection. Yeah, I don't know. The next day, October 26, 1965, would be Sylvia's last day. When the house awoke, they found Sylvia so incredibly weak that she could hardly move or speak in a coherent manner. Gertrude hauled her into the kitchen and tried to force feed her a donut, or one report said toast, and a glass of milk. When Sylvia was unable to take in the food, Gertrude became angry and slammed her into the floor and then ordered her to be taken back into the basement. She was clearly not showing any form of compassion towards Sylvia by attempting to feed her the donut and milk. Sylvia, being essentially on death's door, was just messing with Gertrude's plan. From the basement, moans could be heard coming from Sylvia. Paula went downstairs to see what was happening. She asked Sylvia to recite the alphabet. Sylvia tried, but could only sputter out the first four letters. Sylvia had now defecated on herself. Paula threatened her that if she didn't stand up, she was going to jump on her, and Gertrude just ordered Sylvia to clean up the mess. Throughout the day, a number of Sylvia's regular tormentors stopped by, and not one of them had the sense to go get help. Not one of the lowlife worms told a grown-up or went to the police. Did they want to kill her? I don't know. I don't think the kids really knew that that's what was going to happen. Because they're looking to Gertrude for everything. And if Gertrude's not worried about it, why are they? They had to have understood the severity of the situation. Yeah, I do not understand how they didn't see the difference. But they had all been participating in this for months. Exactly. So they had all watched her decline to this point. Yeah. So they knew this was different. Maybe at this point they thought they would get in trouble. Maybe. Sylvia tried to eat a rotten pear that was given to her but her teeth had become too loose to bite into it. Sylvia had not been able to clean herself. She could hardly move. So sicko John Jr. went and got the garden hose and laughed as he sprayed her with it. Sylvia attempted to crawl to the stairs, but was stopped by Gertrude stepping on her head. At around 5.30 p.m., Richard Hobbs, the one who carved on her skin, came over. Because John Jr. had sprayed water at Sylvia, the floor was wet and Richard fell down part of the stairs. Already in the basement was Stephanie. Her mother had ordered her downstairs to clean Sylvia up. Stephanie was cradling Sylvia and crying over the state that she was in. Perhaps witnessing this scene softened Richard's heart just a little, and he agreed to help Stephanie take Sylvia upstairs to a warm bubble bath. They cleaned her up and put fresh clothes on her. As Stephanie sat with her, Sylvia told her that she wanted to go home and wished her daddy was with her. These would essentially be Sylvia's last words. Stephanie soon realized that Sylvia was no longer breathing. She attempted to give her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Gertrude, being the witch that she is, told the other children that Sylvia was just faking it. What a dirtbag. She then proceeded to strike Sylvia's dead body with a book to try and prove that she was not dead, all the while yelling at her, Faker! Faker! 
Sylvia did not respond to the final beating and did not arise as she was being ordered to. She had succumbed to her injuries. What an awful, horrible death. I can't imagine what it's going to be like for those parents to come back and see all this. No, I cannot. I can't put myself there. Some reports state that Gertrude told the children to strip Sylvia of her clothing and place her body back down into the basement on a mattress. Others say she left her laying on the soiled mattress in the bedroom. She then instructed Richard Hobbs to run to a payphone and call the police. He couldn't use the house phone because they did not have a working telephone in the home. When police arrived at approximately 6.30 p.m., Gertrude was ready with the note in hand that she had forced Sylvia to write. She must have believed that police would buy the story she concocted about Sylvia showing up half-naked after being beaten and mutilated by a group of random men who had purchased sex from her. She also told police that she had been applying rubbing alcohol to Sylvia's wounds to try and give her first aid. Paula stood amongst the chaos clutching a Bible and declared that Sylvia's death was meant to happen, acting like it was God's will. She then looked at Jenny and said loudly enough for all to hear, quote, If you want to live with us, Jenny, we'll treat you like our own sister. What? What a dirtbag, too. Oh, she's gross. Does Stephanie come forward and tell them what actually happened? She does. Oh, good for her. Jenny knew better and managed to whisper to an officer, quote, Get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. How chilling that must have been even for that officer after finding Sylvia's naked, emaciated, abused body. Police knew right away that the injuries on Sylvia's body were weeks in the making. She was not abused during a single incident. An autopsy conducted on Sylvia's body would confirm their suspicions. At the time of her death, Sylvia had over 150 separate wounds on her young body. These wounds included burns, many by cigarettes, bruises, muscle and nerve damage, and cuts, all at different stages of healing. She was severely malnourished, and her vaginal cavity was almost swollen completely shut. The outer layers of her skin on her face, neck, breasts, and right knee were peeling off or receded. All her fingernails were broken backwards, and she had bitten completely through her lips in more than one spot, likely while sustaining blows to her face. It was said that her lips were almost detached from her face. Oh my goodness. The coroner listed Sylvia's cause of death as a subdural hematoma caused by a severe blow to her right temple, which is basically swelling of and bleeding in the brain. Contributing factors were listed as shock, severe and prolonged damage inflicted to her skin and subcutaneous tissues, as well as severe malnutrition. There was essentially no fat left on her body. An expert later testified that Sylvia was likely in an acute state of shock for two or three days leading up to her death. This would have made her less likely to be able to fight back in her last moments. The coroner also noted that Sylvia's body was in full rigor mortis when discovered by the police. This would have indicated that she passed away up to eight hours before the police arrived on scene. He followed this up, however, by stating that it appeared that the body had been bathed, possibly after death, and that could have sped up the rigor mortis process by lowering her body temperature more rapidly. He also noted that Sylvia's hymen was intact, rebuting the claim that Gertrude made about Sylvia being involved in sex work. It also means she was sexually humiliated, but not likely raped. Gertrude Banaszewski was promptly arrested and charged with first-degree murder, and thankfully, she wasn't the only one. Jenny told police the horrors that had been taking place at 3850 East New York Street. Consequently, police also arrested Paula, Stephanie, and John Jr. just hours after Sylvia's body was discovered. Later that same day, Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard were also arrested. 
Paula, Stephanie, John, and Coy were held at a juvenile detention facility. Gertrude's younger four children, as well as Richard, were held at the Indianapolis Children's Guardian's home. Everyone was refused bail. Neighborhood kids, Mike Monroe, Randy Lepper, Judy Duke, Darlene McGuire, and Anna Sisko, were also arrested for injury to a person, but charges for them were later dropped. They were released into their parents' care under the subpoena to appear as witnesses for the trial. It was kind of like a plea bargain for them? Kind of. Okay. If you agree to testify, we'll drop the charges. Okay. Because they knew we need these kids to tell us exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. Unsurprisingly, when Gertrude was questioned, she tried to throw her own children under the bus, saying that they were the ones who abused poor Sylvia. <laughs> she said, quote, Paula did the most damage. Coy Hubbard did a lot of the beating. Both are true, though. They are, but I don't know if they did the most damage. Gertrude was right in there leading the pack. Right. And most parents would want to fall on the sword for their children, but not this hag. In court, she would claim that she was too preoccupied with her own health concerns to control her unruly children. She also tried to deny that much of the abuse even ever happened. I wish there was a sound effect for eyes rolling because this is ridiculous. It really is. And it just makes me hate her that much more. It always feels like a bigger insult when they won't own up to it. Absolutely, it does. When asked about forcing Sylvia to sleep in the cold, dark basement, Gertrude said that she only made her sleep down there on three occasions because she kept wetting the bed. She left out the part about kicking her in the genitals so badly that she could no longer fully control her bladder. Paula was said to show no remorse while talking with authorities about Sylvia. She admitted in a signed statement to beating Sylvia with the police belt only once, and said that she did break her own wrist after punching Sylvia in the jaw. She also said she pushed her down the stairs a few times and gave her a black eye. I read also that Paula gave birth at the beginning of 1966 before the trial started and named her daughter Gertrude as a show of solidarity towards her mother. Puke. Yes. John Jr. said he only spanked Sylvia once, but that, quote, most of the time I used my fists. He told officers that he did burn Sylvia with matches, but that his mom burned her with the cigarettes. Stephanie, although not completely innocent, seemed to be the only Banishevsky to show Sylvia even an ounce of compassion. She eventually had her murder charge dropped. Originally, she was just going to get her own trial in exchange for testifying against her family, but when it came down to it, the trial never happened. Oh, she got off? She did. Okay. But I'm not actually angry about that because Stephanie is the only one that ever tried to defend her or help her. Mm Mm-hmm. Not one other kid in that house did. Yeah, it doesn't seem that awful. No. It's amazing even at 14 that she would be able to stand up against her family when they were all so cruel. The only one that had a brain cell that told her that this is wrong Mm -hmm. and we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. Not that she was completely innocent, but much better than the rest. Well, she could see through the mob mentality. Right. Eventually. The trial for the five assailants began on April 18th, 1966. Despite each having their own defense counsel, aside from John Jr. and Coy having the same one, all were tried together. It was said that they all worked together, quote, in concert to bring about Sylvia's death. If they were each tried separately, a jury would not be able to grasp the total picture and have an accurate understanding of what happened. It was basically like a death by a thousand cuts. The jury had to be carefully chosen for this case, considering that it involved a mother and so many children. Plus, the prosecution was seeking the death penalty, so they made sure not to cast any jury member who was opposed to capital punishment. And were they seeking the death penalty for all of them because it's all the same trial? Or just for Gertrude? 
I think for all of them. Okay. All of the children used the defense that they were coerced and pressured by Gertrude to participate in the torture and abuse. Gertrude pled not guilty by reason of insanity. Uh, I don't know how she can be sane and do all these things. Well, she was examined by three different court-appointed psychiatrists and was deemed sane. She was of sound mind, but had, quote, a capacity for violent action. The others were also examined and deemed competent to stand trial. She could not blame this on a mental illness. And I don't believe she had one. No, it doesn't sound like she did. But it's just hard to wrap your head around somebody doing these horrific things and not being insane. Well, that's why I'm questioning, can someone just be evil? Because I think this woman is just evil. She does sound like she's just evil. Because even, yes, she was abused, but that was in her adult life. It's not like that that influenced the way that her brain developed as a child. The trial for Sylvia's death was an emotional-filled roller coaster. Many experts and witnesses were called to testify. And I could do an entire second episode just on the trial, but I'm going to give you the condensed version. During the trial, they actually took the jury members through the house so they could see the living conditions and where Sylvia was tied up. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I think that was a thing up until the 90s. Yeah, it would definitely be a powerful tool for the prosecution. You could really envision what had happened when you're in that space. Yeah. Jenny was able to testify and tell the world what these monsters put herself and her sister through. I can only imagine how hard that would have been for her. And to add insult to injury... The defense tried to paint the picture that if Sylvia was so abused, why didn't Jenny hobble out onto the street and get help? So blaming a young girl. Neighborhood kids also testified that they knew the abuse was taking place and had even joined in on multiple occasions. One girl testified that she saw the youngest daughter Shirley rip open Sylvia's shirt to humiliate her, and Richard laughed and said, quote, Everybody's having fun with Sylvia. These sick dirtbags were treating her like a spectacle or object to entertain themselves with. I cannot imagine being her parents and having to sit through that courtroom and listen to these things about your child. This is worse than what you could have dreamt up in your nightmare. Mm -hmm. Richard claimed that the branding of the letters he inflicted on Sylvia weren't that deep. He tried to make it sound like it wasn't that bad. He said Sylvia begged him to stop, but he was just doing what Gertrude asked him to. When asked if he felt guilty over what happened to Sylvia, he said, quote, What difference does it make? That is evil. Yes. Marie, one of Gertrude's other daughters, testified about how she heated the needle for the branding. She also spoke about how unaffected her mother was when abuse was taking place. Gertrude would sit in her chair and casually crochet while the kids would beat and torment Sylvia. I imagined it like how a mother would sit by contently while her children played Monopoly together at the kitchen table. Marie was only 11, and at first, she lied for her mother on the stand. But when she was cross-examined, she exclaimed, quote, God help me, and then broke down and told the truth. During the prosecution's closing arguments, Deputy Prosecutor Marjorie Westner described Sylvia's abuse as, quote, stomach-wrenching, and compared the brutality of treatment towards her as severe as what took place against prisoners in Nazi concentration camps. What William Urbecker said during his closing arguments on behalf of the defense, I think just hurt his case more than it helped. He was still going with the not criminally responsible act. He said, quote, I condemn her for being a murderess. That's what I do. But I say she's not responsible because she's not all there, as he tapped his head. If this woman is sane, put her in the electric chair. She committed acts of degradation that you wouldn't commit on a dog. She has to be crazy, or she wouldn't have permitted that. 
you'll have to live with your conscience the rest of your life if you send an insane woman to the electric chair. He then dramatically held up an autopsy photograph of Sylvia and said to the jury, quote, Look at this exhibit. Look at the lips on that girl. How sadistic can a person get? The woman, meaning Gertrude, is stark mad. In my opinion, he just proved how sadistic and evil his clients were. He was right. Most people wouldn't have treated a dog the way they so callously treated a 16-year-old girl. Yeah, that was a bold defense move to make. Yeah, not the right one. The prosecution urged the jury to choose the death penalty for each one accused. He said, quote, Every mark on that girl's body contributed directly to her death, and that was testimony. The subdural hematoma was the ultimate blow. This is the most hideous thing Indiana has ever seen, and I hope will ever see. The issue here is not about the electric chair or a hospital, but about law and order. Will we shy away from the most diabolical case to ever come before a court or jury? If you go below the death penalty in your verdicts in this case, you will lower the value of human life by that much for each defendant. The blood of this girl will forevermore be on their souls. I am shocked they are going for the death penalty for children. Mm-hmm. It speaks to how heinous they viewed the crime as. Totally. It really was heinous. It was. But the death penalty for children? Yeah, you don't see that today. No. The trial was 17 days long, and the jury of eight men and four women deliberated for eight hours. They came back with the verdict of guilty of first-degree murder against Gertrude, but recommended a life sentence. Oh. Paula was found guilty of second-degree murder. John Jr., Richard, and Coy were found guilty of manslaughter. It was reported that Gertrude and her children began sobbing when the verdict was announced. There is a picture of Gertrude lovingly consoling John Jr., and it makes my stomach turn. It's so shocking that she would be able to share love with her own children. Yeah, and I'm sure Betty would love to be able to console her daughter that you tortured to death. Yeah. Sentencing took place on May 25th. The two women were sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole to be served at the Indiana Women's Prison in Indianapolis. The three boys were served sentences of between 2 and 21 years to be served in the Indiana Reformatory. I wish this was the end of the case and I could tell you that they all rotted away in prison, but unfortunately I cannot. Indiana dropped the ball in the most unjust way. Paula appealed her sentence and was granted a new trial. The argument was made for her and her mother that they didn't get a fair trial because they were tried together and because of the outpouring of media coverage. This time, instead of a trial, Paula took a plea deal and pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter. She only served three years in prison and then was let out on parole. Even though she had even attempted to escape, or did for a short time, from prison the year before her release. What? Yeah. How did she get out? I don't know. She had escaped from prison with another prisoner. They caught her right away, hauled her back, and the year later, let her out on parole. This girl literally broke her own wrist on Sylvia's face and was let out after a measly three years. She moved to Iowa and changed her name. She got married, had two children, and lived on a farm. It was said that she worked for a time as a school counselor for teenagers. No way. She did. Her past was found out in 2012, and she was promptly fired. The daughter she had given birth to right after Sylvia's death was adopted by a different family. Oh, wow. The three boys, John Jr., Richard, and Coy, didn't even serve their minimum sentences. 
They all were released from the juvenile detention facility after only 18 months. They would have still been teenagers. That seems so wrong. It is wrong. Richard had a nervous breakdown after being released. He could not stomach the sadistic mob he had become a part of. He tried to ease his anxiety by becoming a chain smoker, and he died of lung cancer by the age of 21. But he's the only one that it seems that it even bothered. Wow. Coy reportedly continued to get into trouble with the law after his release. He was even charged with the murder of two men, but was acquitted. He later died of a heart attack. John Jr. changed his name to John Blake and lived out his life uneventfully. He drove truck for a living before becoming a real estate agent and a lay minister in Texas. And I wrote, excuse me, what? Yeah. As a minister, he counseled children whose parents were going through divorce. He got married and had three children of his own. He later admitted that it would have been justified if he had received a harsher punishment. He died from diabetes. I'm having a hard time understanding how they get to just go on and live their lives. So I know there's rehabilitation, but this just seems wrong that they get to just have their lives. Yeah. A year and a half you spend in a juvie center and then you just get to be released and move on and have full lives. Get married, have children, have jobs, become a minister, work with children. Yeah, that's wild. It is. Stephanie, the one who testified against her family, also changed her name and moved away. It was reported that she became a school teacher, got married, and had several children. Her last known residence was in Florida. The younger Beneshevsky children were placed in foster care until their father was awarded custody. He changed all their last names to Blake. Baby Dennis was adopted by a new family. Both Marie and Dennis have since passed away. Gertrude was also granted a new trial. This time she was convicted of only second-degree murder and was sentenced to 18 years to life in prison. What? Mm-hmm. Why was it changed from first degree to second degree? That's what she was convicted of. Her second trial was for second-degree murder. Yeah. Wow. I'm shocked. I was too. I was ticked right off, to be honest. During her prison time, she became a devout Christian and was referred to as a model prisoner. And I have to say, after doing this podcast, I have come to hate that term. You are not a model anything when you can destroy another human being in the cruel and agonizing way that you did. Regardless of my feelings about it, she was allowed to work in the prison sewing shop and became a quote-unquote den mother to the other inmates. They all referred to her as mom. She also claimed that she was writing a book called The Truth Will Set You Free. What? Mm-hmm. And... Did all these people that she was being a den mom to know what she had done? They had to have. But Gertrude just blamed it on everybody else. Gertrude was paroled in 1985. She walked out of prison on December 4th, a free woman. She still, at the time of her release, didn't take any responsibility in Sylvia's murder. No way. I thought remorse for your crime was one of like the key things to get parole. Yeah. She, in a roundabout way, is like, oh, it's my fault, but it was because I couldn't control my kids and I was so sick and, you know, I didn't know what was happening. It's a slap in the face. The community and Sylvia's family were disgusted and outraged. And rightfully so. Yeah. I'm outraged now, and this was how many years ago? They began a major petition and campaign to try and stop her parole, but to no avail. She changed her name to Nadine Van Fossen and was able to enjoy five full years of freedom in Iowa before passing away from lung cancer on June 19, 1990, at the age of 61. This whole ordeal was hard on Sylvia's family. Lester and Betty got a divorce. 
Betty did remarry, but both parents have since passed away. Jenny struggled with what happened and never got over the traumatization that watching her sister be abused to death had on her. She relied on anxiety medication to help her get through each day. She did get married and had two children. She died of a heart attack at the age of 54. They all died so young. They did. The torture house on 3850 East New York Street was eventually torn down after sitting vacant for years. The place where it stood is now a church parking lot. Sylvia's funeral was held on October 29, 1965, in Lebanon, Indiana. She is laid to rest at the Oak Hill Cemetery. Her headstone reads, quote, Our Darling Daughter. Over 100 people attended the ceremony. Reverend Gibson stated during her funeral, quote, We all have our time of passing, but we won't suffer like our little sister suffered during the last days of her life. She has gone to eternity. In June of 2001, a six-foot-tall granite memorial was dedicated to Sylvia's legacy in Willard Park, Washington Street, Indianapolis. It is inscribed with these words, quote, This memorial is in memory of a young child who died a tragic death. As a result, laws changed and awareness increased. This is a commitment to our children that the Indianapolis Police Department is working to make this a safe city for our children. And it also has this poem written on it. I see a light. Hope. I feel a breeze. Strength. I hear a song. Relief. Let them through, for they are the welcome ones. I wonder how many of those hundred people that went to her funeral were actual ones that knew what was going on. Oh, I cannot even imagine having to know that you could have prevented this. You could have helped in some way. Or even being the parents of those kids who participated. It said there was up to a dozen kids that came by regularly. It's just crazy. Because of Sylvia's death, Indiana created a new law stating that if a member of the public suspects a child in being abused or neglected, then that citizen is legally obligated to report the abuse or neglect to the authorities. On the 50th anniversary of Sylvia's death, October 26, 2015, citizens of Indianapolis and family members met in Lebanon, Indiana to honor Sylvia and all the children who have lost their lives to child abuse. At this event, Diana, Sylvia's older sister, said that Sylvia's legacy, quote, must always be remembered. Sylvia's tragic murder and abuse must always be remembered. And that is why we do what we do. In 2016, the Boone County Child Advocacy Center was renamed to Sylvia's Child Advocacy Center in her honor. The goal of this center is to help children dealing with abuse. I will end with a quote by the director of this great organization. They said, quote, the most important thing we can do is tell kids they are hurt and we are listening. This was something no one did for young Sylvia. Her family is thankful, though. It doesn't have to be that way anymore. She did not die in vain. She died a horrific death. But because of that, we're hoping that another child can be saved. And that is the case of a woman so full of malice and mayhem, a dirtbag so wretched that she never took accountability for her abhorrent actions right up until the very last day the evil and pathetic human Gertrude Banachewski and her henchmen children. It's hard to believe that she wasn't pure evil. I couldn't find anything good to say about her. Nor did you have to, because she was a dirtbag. Yeah, you're not my den mother, that's for sure. Christy, that was a wild ride. And I'm kind of glad it's over. That was some really nasty abuse. I know, it was a hard one. And I'm not sure if everybody stuck around to listen to the end. And for those of you that did, I hope that if you ever suspect anything like this happening to another child, that you will say something. 
It's always worth it to speak up for a child. Mm -hmm. I'd rather you be wrong and feel silly than to regret not saying anything at all. Right. So like I said at the beginning, that was a depressing way to end our summer. But I hope that everybody will have a good fall moving forward. And I hope that you will join us next week when Melissa has another case. Until then. See ya. Bye. Oh, it is fabulous, but it's already nighttime and I'm about to go to sleep. We're like an hour <laughs> off of my bedtime. And we still have like five hours of work to do. <laughs> it's going to be a rough night. You have to dig deep. <laughs> All of a sudden, I have like so much saliva. That's how I was just feeling. Wait, let's take a drink. That is a really big water bottle. She's not messing around, you guys. She's staying hydrated today. I told you, it's my goal to drink more. <laughs> I don't know what that was. I'm going to choke on my own breathing. (laughs) She's probably super sub. And she's probably. Oh, my goodness. And she's probably super conscientious. Not conscientious. Self-conscious. Self-conscious. I hate her. I hate her. I hate her. (laughs) Well, I hate her. Is that okay to put that in there? I don't know. I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm like, oh. oh." I cannot imagine how. Gonna make me cry. I kind of, oh, yeah. oh, it's making my face tingly. Subcutaneous, uh, subcutaneous, subcutaneous, what? Subcutaneous. Thank you. Severe and prolonged damage inflicted to her skin and subcutaneous tissues. Subcutaneous. 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 <laughs> okay. Severe and prolonged damage inflicted to her skin and subcutaneous, subcutaneous, as well as severe malnourishment. Malnourishment again. As well, ugh, my brain is like done. Gertrude Banishevsky. Oh, Banishevsky. Banis- Gertrude Banishevsky. The younger Banishevsky children. Banishevsky. Banishevsky. Um, yeah, you'll have lots of stumbling boober, bloober, bloopers. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.